And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. And welcome to this rotating planetary experience we call the other side of midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn when someone is calling the station from the middle of the Nevada desert, a hundred miles, give or take, to Flagstaff, heading toward the east, toward Arizona. All of that, of course, is a kind of a tease to what we're going to be trying to do here in a moment. Um, let me go to Skype and see if we No, it looks like we have lost our connection. We're going to try to connect tonight with uh, James Goodall, who, as you may remember, is our now resident expert on Area 51, the leading authority. He is a, no a novelist. He's an author of many, many, many uh, nonfiction books on the Area 51, the Blackbird, Aerospace, Exotica, etc., etc. And we're trying to bring him in from the road because he was positioned at the Area 51 invasion this past week and this weekend. And uh, they broke up a bit early, and so we're going to get a live report uh, from him shortly. And uh, we won't know until we make some connections whether we're going to have a connection. In the meantime, let me give you a couple of items that I want to make sure we don't forget for the rest of the evening. If you go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our homepage. Click on that and that banner up there, which uh, talks about the alternative space program with my two guests tonight, Michael Schratt and James Goodall. Click on the banner. That will take you to the guest page for tonight. Scroll down to radio with pictures. Item number one, update on Chandrayaan 2. Remember um, about a week ago, a week and a half ago, the Indian government tried to land the Vikram lander in the Chandrayaan-2 uh, mission, the unmanned mission to the moon, the second unmanned mission for the Indian government. And everything was working fine up until a few moments before landing. They were less than a mile up, and then something happened. Actually, it happened twice. And then just before touchdown, the Indians lost connection with their lander called Vikram. And they've been trying um, for the last several many days, almost now two weeks, to contact it by means of radio. There are reports coming out of India um, that the, um, the orbiter, the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter, which is in great condition, orbiting about 60 miles up, it looked down with its cameras and spotted the region where the Vikram lander was supposed to have touched down. There was one report that I have not been able to verify that says on the very high resolution images that are shot from the orbiter, which are capable of showing things as small as one foot, three-tenths of a meter, one foot. Well, with that resolution, they apparently got an image of the Vikram lander sitting on the surface kind of looking intact, although the report did say that it was tilted, and that implies a very hard landing with shock absorbers breaking on one side, and they've been trying ever since to send radio signals to it from the Earth, and there has been nothing but a deafening silence. Now, in a couple, three weeks, we're going to have a show, another moon show, with our team, with the Enterprise Imaging team, 
And the reason we're holding off a bit is because, A, we have no surface imagery from uh, Chandrayaan 2. We do have some orbital shots. We have some astonishing orbital shots. And based on the analysis and comparison of those data with the equally amazing images that were shot by the Bereshit mission, remember the Israelis in April tried their own private landing, and it also went haywire in the last minute or two, and it crashed much higher speed than the hard landing of Vikram. So when you compare the images of the moon shot by both the spacecraft of, of the lunar limb, the curving edge of the moon as seen from lunar orbit, there's some very remarkable, in fact, astonishing things to be seen. And it's those details in the Chandrayaan compared to the Bereshit orbital images that now inform us here at Enterprise as to what happened to the Indian landing spacecraft. They hit the glass. And we're going to give you much more details with actual imagery, with actual data, with actual graphs from the official broadcast by Vikram as it was landing back to the Indian Control Center in India. And we put all this together, and we know what happened to the Vikram lander. And lo and behold, if you go back and listen to some earlier shows in the last several months as we talked about this mission upcoming, we predicted that what happened to the Vikram lander was actually going to happen. And why? And I know that all sounds like a huge tease. Well, frankly, it is. So we will... Um, Put up, uh, you know, placards and blogs and posts and notifications of when we're going to do this next moon show. Because one of the things we're working on is a 3D computer model of the moon that both Bereshit and Vikram and, of course, all the other missions to the moon from the U.S. and the USSR and the Japanese um, have encountered in previous eras. And no one has told you what they really saw. So you're going to want to stay tuned for that. Switching gears, item number two in Radio with Pictures under my items tonight. We've got a couple stories there. Well, one story on the uh, Storm Area 51 activity. And as a matter of fact, um, um, why don't we go to Jim right now and see if we can pick him up. Mr. Goodall, are you there? And I do not hear him. So, James Goodall. Yes, man. Jim, you there? I'm here. Okay. I'm here. I've done your intro, so tell us where you are and what was been happening and uh, how did the Storm Area 51 event uh, take place? Okay, I'm, a, I'm about uh, 85 miles from Flagstaff on Interstate 40. And we were there, uh, Stuart Brown and I headed off to uh, NICO, Nevada, to be part of the Storm Area 51 base camp. And it, George Harris put out, a, a, put out a lot of money, and because they, there were so many reports that the thing had been, everything had been canceled, a lot of people didn't show up. But it was, we had about 400 people at the base camp, and 
they estimate somewhere maybe a thousand mostly scattered in the desert near uh, Rachel. There was only one arrest. It was uh, right at the gate of Area 51, the main road, the, the back road. And some, some Yehu decided in front of a cop, <laughs> he was an unzipped pants and watered down the, the gate where he got arrested for indecent exposure. <laughs> oh, well, we know how he wanted to go down in history. <laughs> right, right. Um, it was, it was, it was, it was fun. It was, Pat Travis was tickled to see us because uh, we helped, we helped with Pat on the little alien on the map. And, Pat had the Pat had the had the kitchen closed, and she was charging seven dollars for a can of uh, for Budweiser. Oh God! The end of the world is going to be a monetary event. I can see it now. Right, right. And some guy was complaining. I said, "Well, you should have known you're in the middle of absolutely nowhere. What makes you think that?" Pat Travis, who has the only retail establishment within a, within 50 or 100 miles, that she wouldn't charge an arm and a leg <laughs> for something she would. It's called supply and demand. Yep. You're in the middle of nowhere. You had a demand for a beer. She had the supply good for Pat. <laughs> <laughs> so Pat was 87. I heard her late husband, Joe. So nobody was killed, thank God. Nobody was killed. The weather was absolutely perfect. It was in the, the, the mid the mid eighties, high you know, high seventies, depending on where you were. There were probably more law enforcement in the area than there were participants and uh, revelers. I so saw some. I saw some uh, video on Fox, I think. Um, they were carrying George Knapp, because I think that's the local Fox affiliate there in Las Vegas. Anyway, I saw a whole yeah. bunch of people who looked like aliens themselves. It looked like everybody with a costume drove from Los Angeles to the middle of the Nevada desert. Yeah, there was a, there was a ton of people there. And I just hope I don't get a ticket. I'm just getting ready to go by a cop. Hmm. I've been doing I've been doing eighty five. So maybe it's not a cop, maybe it's a fire truck. So, okay. <laughs> I feel better it's not a cop. Well that would be a new radio first on live radio. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, we we had a good time. Uh every everybody went out of their way to do the best they could. I felt sorry for a lot of the vendors. Uh, the store, the, uh, the base camp store, did a, uh, a gold rush business. I mean, they had a line of people outside the, uh, George Harris' place in Nico, where we stayed. There was a line of people almost almost for two days, the three days we were there. And uh, so he did well that way, but he funded everything. I mean, there was there was a band last night. There was a disc jockey. Uh, there was all sorts. Of, I mean, it was a 
He really did an incredible job, and I think they're going to do it again next year. Hmm. So this is Aliens Best One, and it's it's like it's like Bernie Man was. First time they had Bernie Man, maybe there was 150 people. When Burning Man, when Burning Man was a real amateur effort in the desert. Correct. Correct. And then it went to so, total corporate insanity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it sounds like it's like a, like like a new tradition has started, and you know, I'm just glad that nobody died, um, and I'm I'm not really no, saying that no, tongue in cheek. Yeah, and no one got hurt. Yep. I mean, there were no snake bites. There were no scorpion bites. Uh, there was nothing. No, there was there were no there was no use for probably forty or fifty EMT type vehicles and people in the area. Hmm. I mean, they were they were ready. I mean, they were armored personnel carriers down there. Uh, it was it was it was pretty amazing the amount of hardware that they had. Just in case. Well, they all, when this thing went wide on Facebook, there was something like two million responses that said, you know, be there or be square. Right, right. Well, then, then the, the response went out. It's been canceled. Yeah, you and, and I, you and I talked earlier in the week, and I said, are you still going? Because I thought it was canceled, and I was can, you know, confused myself. So no wonder most people stayed home. Very smart, very wise. But it, but it was still fun, and it's it's the beginning of a trend. I don't know if I don't know if I'll go back next year. If I'm invited, I will. Uh, George Harris and most everybody that heard me talk really want me back. I only had a, I only had about ten minutes to talk. Jerry, Jeremy was uh, was doing. A, Doing too much talking for my good. But <clears throat> it, was, it was his party. It was, it was his party, so I had to let him talk. Well, one thing people need to understand is that there were several people who started this, you know, internet thing, and the guy who did it, he's the one who said that he was canceling his participation, and I guess a lot of people assumed that if he was pulling out, the whole thing was going to go away. Which is why they didn't show up. Correct. Correct. I mean, and there was there was probably more road traffic on Nevada 375, which is the extraterrestrial highway, than they've seen in probably 20 years. Hmm. Well, let me ask you the big question. You're all out there in the desert. Area 51 is just a few miles away. You're looking into into its airspace. Did anybody see anything? There was a temporary flight restriction. There was nothing there except for one medevac helicopter. <laughs> that was the they, they, they sent most everybody at Area 51 that normally works there. They sent them home Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, uh, just so that if, if for some reason the protesters and the gate crashers were going to be successful, uh, they didn't want them, these people to be involved or in harm's way, so they were being good stewards that way. Hmm. So did they pay them, or did they have to take uh, t- time off without pay? 
No, they, I, I doubt seriously they, this is the federal government, it's our tax money. They paid them. You know, you don't send a, you don't send a, a civilian contractor or whatever home because of a protest and not pay them. Mm. I mean, if it's been, if it's been a private entity, then they probably said, well, I can't afford to pay you. But being it's, Oh, well, at least one group that made out uh, from this little event. Well, when I was, I was talking, I, was, I talked to a lot of the law enforcement guys, and I said, well, what do you think? And he said, he said, my God, I, I get all this overtime. Uh, what's not the like? There's nothing going on. There's nobody speeding. Nobody's getting drunk. Nobody's anybody. Everybody is either hunkered down in their house they don't want to be near this place or they're just there for a good time. There was the people the people at the base camp. We were wandering, Stuart and I were wandering through and there was a, a group of Mexican guys from San Diego. They couldn't have been more toward, hey, sit down, sit hey, you want a beer? You want this, you want that, what can I get you? And oh, terrific. It was it was it was it was a wonderful experience, and the only people I felt bad for because of the the, the low attendance were the vendors. But like like one guy said, we've been screwed by the best. So mm. that's what these guys do. They I mean, not just guys, but men and women. Well, I mean, if, if 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 uh, she was charging seven bucks for a beer, I mean, how do you go broke at those rates? program? Do they have music and speakers and all that at the base camp? too bad that some of the guys we're going to be talking about in the rest of the show didn't show up and kind of put on an event overhead just to give them a thrill. It, it would have been it would have been fun. I was, <laughs> I was hoping that they, I was hoping they were going to have one seventeen on a Tonopah test range and just fly over Chippewa Valley and fly over uh, Nico. Just do we have something to go ooh and ah about? Well, I'm glad you made it there. I'm glad you enjoyed yourself, and I'm glad you're on the way home. I'll tell you what I'm going to ask you to do. Since you know I'm much better than I do, I think, why don't you introduce our next guest? We've got about 10 minutes to the bottom of the hour. You're talking about Michael? I'm talking about Michael. Well, Michael is 
sort of my replacement. I'm uh, I'm getting up there in age. I've been doing this for 40 years. The the only the only person with young blood that has taken up the banner to go in and dig and poke and be a pain in the rear to the you know, the people that told secrets is Michael. And an incredible job. Uh, I just you for courteous young clean cut guy on the planet that Michael Shrat. And that's why you describe him. And he has a he has a passion for spooky things and things that go bump in the night. Only uh, his, his, his passion is only a slight bit less than mine. How did you I guys much- how did you guys meet? I think we're I think we're losing you. Why don't I bring on Michael and you guys can talk for a couple of minutes till we get to the bottom of the hour. Okay. Michael, Michael Shrat, this is your life. <laughs> uh, Jim, thank you for the kind introduction, Jim. It says on my board he's still there, but he's still there. Okay. I don't hear him. <laughs> you know, he's in those mountains on Route 40. Ah, there he is. I hear road noise. Jim, you with us? Yeah. Yeah, I lost you for a second. Uh, no, Mike, Michael's one of the nicest kids, nicest guys, nicest kids you'll ever meet, period. Well, from your elevated age, everybody's a kid. Pretty much. The only time I wasn't when I, when I was a restoration manager at the Museum of Flight, almost everybody that worked in the restoration center was in their mid to late 70s to 90s. We even had a guy that was 100. And it was the only time in my late adult life that I was called the kid. That so, doesn't happen very often. <laughs> so, Michael, you got any questions you want to ask Jim uh, in his trekking explorations back from safe from the crowds of Area 51? What does the sky look like, Jim? Good question. What, what, what does the sky look like? Yeah, what does the sky look like right now? Uh... When we were there, it was 
visibility unlimited. Oh, wow. Oh. And when we got there on Thursday, the wind was blowing about 40 miles an hour. That's no and fun. That real, that, that real fine talcum powder dust mm-hmm. over absolutely everything. And uh, other, than, other than that, and the fact that they forgot to tell us where the heater controls were in the, in the RV that we were staying in, <laughs> and it got, it got down into, I think, the high 30s, throws our butts off. But we made it through the night. First thing in the morning, I found the uh, heater controls. So from that point, that point forward, we were fine. So this base camp, they set up a special situation, brought in power and food trucks and band equipment and electronics and all that in the middle of where where was base camp actually? And did we lose him? Boy, you know that reminds me. So many times, Robin and I would drive that road from uh, California across Nevada into Arizona. It's um, gives me goosebumps. So, Jim, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you now. Okay. Sound like I'm doing a commercial. Yeah. Now I'm going to be getting uh, within the next half hour, forty minutes. I'm going to be getting close to to, uh, uh, Flagstaff. It's been a long day. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to good night you at the bottom of the hour if we don't lose you before, because you've given us a perfect, uh, you know, radio visual of what it was like, and it sounds like fun, and, uh, you know, if it starts a tradition, every little bit helps. It, it brought a lot of public attention, a lot of national attention to the idea of what are they really doing at Area 51? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of these days we may find out some of the stuff. This weekend was not that that time. Well, I thought they had good sense in converting it to a party, and even better sense for most of those people to stay home, because the desert is no yeah. no place to fool around with. Although it sounds to me like you're really lucked out on the weather. The weather was the desert. It was absolutely perfect. It was high seventies, low eighties, slight breeze. No humidity. It was cool in the morning, but it was uh, it was it was a delight. Weather-wise, it was delightful. The, and the people who put on who put on the organization there at uh, at the Area 51 base camp, I couldn't ask for a, for a, a more cordial. Go out of the way to help us. I mean, we we got there. Uh, Troy came by and said, "You guys need any water?" I said, yeah, I could use a bottle. Two minutes later, she brought in 10 bottles of water. Uh, I needed some. Boom, they were right there. They were they were fantastic. And I couldn't. And George Harris and the entire production crew that put everything, all the hardware together, all the vendors. Uh, there'll be there'll be another one, and you'll make money at it this time. Well, there won't be that confusion about, you know, is it on, is it off, is it on? That's what really, you know, actually that was kind of a blessing in disguise because they'll now have a year to prepare and and do it right. Right. Now, 
base camp it did it had done it right. Rachel had no clue. Uh, and they were prepared for it. They didn't they didn't have they had hardly any porta bodies. There there were there were dozens of porta bodies all over the place at the base camp. Uh, there was water, uh, hand washing stations everywhere. So it was you know, they did it right at at the base camp in the area. Okay, Jim, we're losing you. Thank you so much. Stay safe. You know, as, as my trucker friends used to say, you know, keep the shiny side up and the rubber side down. That was Jim Goodall reporting from the road from uh, uh, area the Area 51 invasion. When we come back, we're going to bring on Michael Schratt. We're going to have uh, two and a half hours of an extraordinary journey. And I want to thank Jim Goodall again and his traveling companion, and say hello to Arizona. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to the other side of midnight on this Saturday night. It's 
September 21st. I, I, I checked the calendar um, for the show, and I was going to make a big deal of uh, the uh, Area 51 event was coincident with um, with the equinox, but not quite. The actual technical equinox occurs tomorrow night, actually early, early Monday morning at about 1.50 uh, Land of Enchantment time, Mountain Time. So we'll make a big deal about the equinox uh, tomorrow night. Uh, Michael, are you there? I am here, Richard. (laughs) Okay. Well, it's so great to hear from Jim because, you know, we did a show with him a few weeks ago, and he gave us this extraordinary overview of Area 51 and the Blackbird and how he got into all this. And, you know, with someone with his prestige and uh, extraordinary research skills and – uh, newspaper savvy and news kind of knows for news that he has when he gives you the intro that he did, you know, we definitely need to take notice. So let's fill in some gaps. Okay. Sure. Who is Michael Schratt and why did he wind up on the radio with his good friend, uh, Jim Goodall? How did you get well, to be an aerospace historian? <laughs> Uh, Richard, it's an honor to be with you. I really appreciate it, Richard. I've been following your research for years from the very beginning. Um, I love the way you lay out your stories where you provide references, backgrounds, clippings, all the supporting evidence to back up your case. That's exactly the way I try to run it as well. Which gainsays the question, how did you get into this strange business? I mean, we're going to be talking about technologies that most people think are out of cuckoo land. We're going to be talking about events, historical events that people think have been written by novelists. And we're going to be talking about an engineering that uh, for most people is the nearest thing to magic that they've ever heard of. How did you become Michael Mm -hmm. Schratt, aerospace historian, documenting the amazing, unbelievable stuff? Good question. Okay. Uh, Best way I can describe it is living near Chicago. Uh, There's a small town there called Marengo. And in Marengo, like in the early to mid 70s, there was an air museum. I wouldn't really call it an air museum, but it just had a bunch of old World War II, derelict, dilapidated, left for dead decrepit-looking warbirds that were just kind of left to rot outside there. They had opaque canopies. The skin was cracked. Uh, the paint was peeling off. It just had this ghostly appeal. So wait, wait, this isn't the boneyard down around Tucson, no, is it? No, this isn't. Nope, this this is not uh, Tucson. Uh-uh, this is in Marengo, Illinois. Wow. We're talking 1975, that time frame. That just made such a massive impression on me. They had a PBY Catalina there. They had a P-47. And, of course, all the weeds were growing up through the uh, wheel bells. And it just had this ghostly attraction. Oh, it it, it must have been almost painful to see these heroes, these World War II heroes that won the war against the Nazis and the Japanese – Sitting abandoned and yes. corroding and degrading back into, I mean, kind of like looking at Martian artifacts. 
that's that was the impression I got. It's like you're looking at an alien artifact from another world because the chip was painted, it was faded, windshields were cracked, they had weeds grown up through the fuselage, and that that's what set it off for me, Richard. That is really what got me going in my research. And then my father, over a period of about 25 years, you know, we we had been going to Oshkosh. The air show there, which is the largest air show in the world, for literally 27 years oh in a row. Oh, my God. And that's how I got somewhat fluent with general aviation, experimental aircraft, warbirds. Uh, they have the classic things there, all the composite aircraft. And so it gives you a really good cross-section of what's out there. But I was always, always interested in what else might be out there as well. And this kind of ties in with what Jim Goodall had done because when he was at Edwards Air Force Base, he saw some interesting birds there that changed his life forever. And that's kind of what it did for me over in Marengo. That's what started my research into aircraft, which led to kind of where we are now. Hmm. So when did you, I mean, did you wind up working in engineering or in the aerospace industry or for an aircraft company? Uh, I've worked as a mechanical drafter for multiple different companies around the country. Okay. Specifically modeling up parts, drafting, building materials, calling vendors, and putting together packages for the FAA where you could have a supplemental type certificate and things could be installed on an aircraft after mountains of paperwork are, are actually filled out and approved by the FAA, then you can install it on the aircraft. So that's kind of a rough background of what I've been involved in. So what kind of programs did you work for? Uh, I've done commercial airliners, 747, 737, done a number of Airbus uh, installations. So I was involved in those type uh, programs. Okay. Anything on the defense side? Uh, perhaps, perhaps, yes. <laughs> oh, we've reached that point this early in the evening. <laughs> okay. So you get to see this technology literally if you're doing illustrations and, and, you know, what we used to call blueprints and all that. It's all CAD now. It's all computer. You're seeing this technology from the inside out. Well, the way I would describe it is we had a big microfilm reader downstairs at one of the locations where I worked and they had all the Boeing maintenance manuals there and so when we would get a request for modeling up a new part we would go downstairs pull the microfilm print out the station locations and stringers and bulkheads and that tells you all the internal workings of these Boeing aircraft and that's where you can decide where to install hardware. And that's how you get a good idea of what makes up an airliner, how it's actually constructed, all the gussets and fillets and, you know, talking about composite aircraft being completely fully integrated when you have an airliner made out of aluminum. It's just not the same thing. So it's just a different animal when you have a, an aluminum aircraft. And so and, from this point forward. Well, you say it's different. How is it different? Well, because I'm I'm thinking of the uh, uh, what is it the 787, which is a composite carbon fiber composite. It's not metal. It's a lot of you know basically plastic. Although that's probably a degrading term. And they had some very huge problems with that aircraft uh, even as, as as recently as a year ago. And they put their problems in a steel box so it can't damage the rest of the aircraft. But they didn't solve their problem. I'm talking about the batteries. 
you know, basically igniting in flight these lithium ion batteries. So what's the difference beyond that that we, as a general public, okay. knows about between that kind of aircraft, which is really at the cutting edge, and good old uh, duraluminum? Well, I'm going to try to describe this the way Bert Rattan described it in a number of uh, lectures that he's given over the years. So let's go back to 1920. And instead of fabric, they were working with aluminum. Uh, they were working with composites. And they were uh, using epoxies, and they were doing resin, and they were uh, cutting out foam with a hot wire, and they were uh, mixing in micro bubbles, micro balloons, and they were putting that over the composite structure. And wait, 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 we're talking the yeah. 1920s. Yeah, I'm talking. I'm, I'm just doing a, a theoretical, a theoretical model. So, so you're kind of foreshadowing uh, Howard Hughes and the Spruce Goose, which was this huge airplane built of wood. Well. Maybe not that, but I'm, what I'm trying to do is set an example that if instead in 1920, when we were working with uh, tube and fabric and we were covering our planes with fabric, if, if we started in 1920 building aircraft out of composites, out of composite aircraft construction with fiberglass, with carbon fiber, and with resin and epoxy and all this – this back in, in back in 1920, if we were doing carbon fiber in 1920, and then all of a sudden, someone knocks on the door and said, I have a new material to make aircraft out of it. It's called aluminum, and we're going to make the aircraft out of aluminum, and we're going to drill holes in this. And we're going to stuff a piece of aluminum in that hole. We're going to we're going to bend it beyond its fatigue rate, uh, and then we're going to assemble the whole aircraft like that. It, it would never pass through the FAA. It would never pass through the FAA. And that's kind of where we're at. We're 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 finally getting to the point where we should be long time ago. And so that's kind of the impression that that's been made. That if we started in the 1920s like this, we'd be so far ahead now. Hmm. So why why was the shift made from the the burgeoning, you know, fledgling composite industry mm-hmm. to cutting airplanes out of aluminum? Well, it was it was aluminum first and then it went to composites. What it should have done is it should have been composites all along. But the technology just wasn't there back then. It just we didn't know how to do that back then, and now we've got smooth contouring on general aviation aircraft, and that reduces the drag coefficient. We, we've got laminar flow back to 78% from the leading edge of the wing, and if you can keep it laminar, you can drop your drag coefficient way down. And so there, there's always this this progress being made. There's actually a group called the Laminar Flow True Believers Society. <laughs> there is such a thing called laminar flow. And if you can get that flow to be attached, well, to the I know in in, in metal airplanes because we started yeah. out with you know wire and as you said cloth, <clears throat> then then there was the spruce goose, which was a kind of a one-time thing, building a huge airplane, the biggest in the world, out of wood, and it flew. It actually flew briefly, um, and then you know aluminum, of course, is what everybody thinks of when they think of airplanes. I know of one experiment, and I think it was done by NASA, where to get this laminar flow, where you want smooth air across the wing, no vortices, burbles, uh, you know, imperfections in the airstream, they, they, they drilled thousands, hundreds of thousands of holes in the right. wing, in the leading edge, and forced right. air out of the wing to put a boundary layer over the wing 
to try to increase that laminar flow. And from my memory, I don't think those experiments were very successful because yeah. the, the, the weight of the compressor to produce that laminar flow over the area of both wings was – you basically ate up all your efficiencies in, in, in the weight of the additional power system you needed. Richard, you're talking about one of the holy grails of aviation, laminar flow control. That's really well done. <laughs> That's really well done. But getting back to the composites, uh, Bert Rattan designed something called the Starship POC, Proof of Concept. This is back in scale composites, 83 time frame. That led to the Beach Starship. And I just want everyone to know that to, to this date um, – and the, the starships are almost all gone. There's very few of them left flying in the world because they've all been ground up and burned away. But when it was flying, um, Richard, that aircraft essentially has an unlimited lifespan. It's certified for unlimited because of the uh, material properties of the composites. It just doesn't degrade like uh, aluminum aircraft does. Hmm. So that's what we're looking at. That, that thing could theoretically fly for another 100 years as long as you do the maintenance on it. It's certified for unlimited life. You're, you're not going to get that in un, any other aircraft. Cessna 172, 152, you just can't get that out of, a, of an aluminum aircraft. So this Beechcraft Starship, this was a, um, a civil aviation private air, airplane, as we would call it. Did it get up high enough where it had pressurization issues? Yeah, well, it, I wouldn't say it had issues, but if you've ever seen a beach starship in person, Richard, or you can Google it. Oh, it's I, just, I know what they look like. They look gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. Well, but, it's but they're prop-driven. Yeah, it's it's one of these aircraft that has such a mystique around it. It has this mysterious mystique. It's it's so beautiful, and when it taxis up on a ramp. Everyone wants to see it. Uh, I interviewed some engineers who worked on, on the Beach Starship program, and he said that when this thing would pull up, you know, and they were filling it up with gas, the, the, the fuel people, when they were coming up to the aircraft, some of these guys were just so awe-inspired by it, they fell off the ladder because it's just so awe-inspiring. It just has some type of mystique about it where it just draws you to it well it's an airplane that's full of smooth curves it looks like an alien spacecraft and you're saying that it's so much easier to do that in composites now than in aluminum well now in 2019 yeah yeah it's it's the way it's the only way to go we, we can never look back we cannot go back to pounding rivets through holes in aluminum. <laughs> we just can't do it. It's just an arcane, obsolete, dinosaur, Model T-type way to build aircraft. We should never return. Hmm. Then it's the spruce the goose, really, if Hughes had, had to really put that into, into you know, operation with its curved and, and laminated and pre-stressed uh, plywood, I forget what the wood was, it, it, it wasn't spruce. It was uh, some other wood. But they literally used these huge hydraulic presses to curve the wood into the shape, and then they glued it all together so it should have had the same laminar characteristics that composites do now. In a way, but you're never going to get the level of accuracy you can with composites. Now, if you go to the Smithsonian, and I'm sure you've been there, Richard, oh, many where, times. You've, where you've seen the Hughes H1 Racer. Now, they had flush rivets there. That That's approaching 
perhaps what you could get, but you're still never going to get the, the amount of laminar mm. flow that you can get on a really well done composite. Although I love the H1 racer like everybody else. And that thing is really fared in nicely, but bottom line is composites are the future. Mm. It is the future. So what about some of the, I mean, we're obviously into the engineering of airplanes. We're going to segue to spacecraft shortly. I heard some in the beginning, you know, which is less than 10 years ago now, some weird things about composite. For instance, there was a um, major aircraft accident coming out of New York a few years ago, and I forget what the aircraft was, but it had a composite vertical stabilizer. And they claimed, I think I remember they claimed, that the aircraft crashed on, on, on takeoff because the vibrations, the resonant vibrations, mm-hmm. literally split the composites in that huge vertical tail, and without a tail, they had no control and there was no way to get them down safely. I'm not familiar with. Do you know what type of aircraft it was? No, it was it was uh, it was it was it was a big aircraft. It was one of the largest that Airbus makes, I think. Okay, um, not sure, not sure, Richard, not sure what that would be. But generally speaking, you you don't hear about structural failure in composite aircraft because it's all integrated. It's like the tail is talking to the fuselage. And the well, fuselage but this was this was a composite tail on an aluminum yeah. airplane. Yeah. See? Well, maybe there was a and and it it, it, it broke off clean at that intersection. So mm-hmm. the, uh, the the way they held it on must not have been very very um, safe. If if the entire aircraft was made out of composite, I don't think you'd see that. You, no. you won't see a structural failure on a starship, that's for sure. Yeah, no, it, it's it's where the two met, mm-hmm. which yep. of course gave the industry a bad name. And you know, those of us that kind of look at how airplanes are made. So let's move from from aircraft into. Have you been involved in any spacecraft programs? Negative. Okay. I have not. So your all your engineering experience, your CAD designs, your right. how the thing works is all based on airfoils, things that need air in a in you know in an atmosphere to fly, and laminar airflow is the bed, all that kind of thing. Well, what got you intrigued with the idea there may be exotic aircraft tooling around in the Earth's atmosphere? Forget where they're from for a moment, but had nothing to do with standard power plants and standard aerodynamics? Well, I went to the Air Force Museum like a lot of other people and was inspired by those aircraft as well. One thing led to the other, uh, the XB-70. Was this in, in, um, in, in Colorado? Oh, oh, well, this is back at Wright-Patterson. Oh, Wright-Patterson, okay. Where they have the Air Museum there. Now, that is another one of these awe-inspiring aircraft. And when you see that aircraft, and they used to park it outside. This is a long time ago, like mid to late 1970s. It used to be parked outside and before they brought it in the hangar now. What, what, what airplane are we talking about? The North American Aviation XB-70 Valkyrie. Oh, the Valkyrie. The oh Valkyrie, my yes. It's another one of these awe-inspiring aircraft. <laughs> Which was at the cutting edge of engineering at the time. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a huge airplane. It, it, it looked like a flying dart. It even right. it even had little tiny. It kind of looked like a flying Tyrannosaurus Rex because it had stubby little wings up around the cockpit. Two of them Correct. called canards. That's and right. It, it looked like very bizarre for an airplane. And they lost. I think they lost one in a crash. 
That's right. Not due to its own fault. It was the, one of the chase aircraft apparently got in the airstream or something. Um, and this was just at the end of when the Air Force was looking at where we're going to have bombers, are we going to have missiles? And it was at the end of its kind of projected man bomber role. But I, I've never seen one up close, but I've seen tons of, of you know, film. And it's an extraordinary airplane. It looks, as I said, like a huge flying dart. Richard, I'm not telling you what to do, but you owe it to yourself <laughs> to go to the Air Force Museum and spend a day. You could spend a day in that hangar alone. Uh, absolutely awe-inspiring aircraft. Uh, when you stand next to it, it's just otherworldly. There's no mm. other word to describe it. It's just beyond belief. And it, well, it sounds to me. It sounds to me you're sounding very similar to Jim Goodall's love affair yes, with the SR-71. Exactly. <laughs> It has a similar effect. Which, by the way, is a miracle in titanium, speaking of metallic aircraft. I mean, how could you create and composite an airplane that literally glows red hot at 80,000 feet as it's screaming through the atmosphere with two huge, huge engines? I mean, you can't really make a composite airplane do that, can you? Well, they had problems with the paint on the XB-70. It kept on coming off. You can see photos of it with this patchwork paint on it. It just kept coming off at those speeds. So, hmm. And it was it, it was was a build of steel or, or aluminum? I think some of it was stainless steel. Well, it had a it had a composite construction to it. And you were talking about the crash. That's when the F-104 uh, went uh, inverted and sheared off both verticals, and then it went to a flat spin and crashed near Barstow, California. And almost, I almost got killed trying to find pieces of that thing. So there's a whole backstory there. But. Oh, that sounds like another whole show. Yeah. Wow. Anyway. So how did you make the tra- – you're at the museum there in, at Wright-Pat. Right. Some very strange things have been reported to have happened over the years. Mm-hmm. How did you lift your sights from gorgeous airplanes to – possible spacecraft you're talking about some of the other craft that we'll be talking about tonight no i'm talking about the general theme of ufos oh ufos okay well sometimes the line is blurred uh because when you read these reports and i I guess we should talk about the backstory spend a minute of how we got to some of these reports um living in the Chicagoland area, I was very close to the Center for UFO Studies, QFOS. Oh, right, right, the one that and Alan Hynek was, started. Yep, J. Allen Hynek's uh, organization. I was within striking range, about an hour away. So I uh, made arrangements with the librarian, and over a period of about three years, um, I went through all close to 50,000 cases that they have there. And, and it really is 50,000 cases. This is not an exaggeration. There are thousands upon thousands of cases. Now, these are sightings and reports that came into Alan Hynek long after he passed away. They kept sending in things. So long after 86, people continued to send in their sightings. And they, there would be a report. There'd be a drawing. There'd be a sketch. There'd be artwork, paperwork to back it up, maps. And so when I pulled open these file drawers, there might be maybe 200 to 250 cases which in each of these drawers. I would pick out only the ones that had a good sketch, drawing, text to go with it, and that's how I move forward on the cases. Hmm. 
Yep. So, so you started looking at the classic UFO reports, and of course, Alan was meticulous in getting as much uh, eyewitness data, or you know, sometimes even had physical samples. So you got intrigued with the idea that maybe there were craft that were a little more performing than stuff you'd been working with. Sure. I, I had a long interest in aviation before I started going through those files, but seeing those files and then seeing the actual handwritten letters that were sent to Alan Hynek with the sketch of the actual craft, in those cases, you can bank on it. These people aren't lying. They're, they're recording what they saw. And I, I really think that we can take it to heart and we can have the confidence that they're telling us the truth. I mean, some of these sketches are really detailed, very detailed. I, I don't think they're lying. I just don't. Hmm. They're, they're actually reporting what they're seeing. So you've been looking now in the files and the archives and UFO reports. At what point did you begin to suspect that not everything was, if we're talking about a real physical vehicle, the mm -hmm. standard 50s explanation from the 40s or the 50s was, well, maybe they're interplanetary. Maybe they're, quote, alien, that kind of thing. When did you get the idea that maybe some of them are made a lot closer to home? Well, if you look at the flaps of 47 and 52, 52 was even bigger than 47. A lot of these UFOs have been reported. Now, a flap, it was defined as a huge spike in the number of, sure, of, sure. of witnesses and reports and all that. Okay. Correct. That's correct. Um, basically, if you look at the 52 cases, some of these UFOs are reported to come and go as they please. They can material materialize and dematerialize as they please. They've been seen going into the ocean, popping out of the ocean, going into space, so that qualifies as a USO. <laughs> and they've been seen going into the sides of mountains with no impact, no physical effect whatsoever. So I think we could be looking at an interdimensional craft, or we could be looking at a pre-existing, high-technologically advanced society that's been on this planet for thousands of years. When you say been on this planet, are you saying that maybe they live here? Or I'm thinking that they're ever, you know, they're already here. They've been living in the oceans. Uh, we've got reports going back to the uh, 1400s where the sailors reported these things popping out of the ocean right next to their craft. This is going back hundreds of years. So, you know, who had the technology to do that mm. hundreds of years ago? I'll tell you what. Hold it there. My guest this morning is Michael Schratt, aerospace historian, who started out in aircraft, a love of airplanes, and migrated in a very interesting way to vehicles that were capable of just a little better performance, like, duh, hypersonic speeds, stopping dead on a dime, making turns that would crush occupants into a thin glutatinous uh, mixture on the cockpit walls if they were operating like airplanes do. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Michael in great detail about what it is that he got intrigued with that made him suddenly realize one day, well, maybe these things, some of them at least, are from a lot closer than from here. You're on the other side of Midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.